Good morning, all. Great to see you. Glad you're here. I wore my spring sweater today, trying to give Mother Nature the idea. It was a short summer, wasn't it? Wow. At least we didn't get sunburned. Humidity was low, so it's pleasant that way. Anyway, hope that we turn the corner here pretty soon. To uh, today, I want to uh, I want to preach an old timey sermon. It's like an old time sermon. It, uh, it flies in the face of our postmodern rationalism in which we live and speaks to us forthrightly and carefully about our lives and the brevity of them. Moses wrote, as recorded in the psalm, Psalm 90, which we're going to read in just a moment, teach me to number my days so that I'll have a heart of wisdom. And indeed, uh, it's right for us to get the right perspective. So Psalm 90 today, I'm going to read the first 12 verses under this uh, message, Number Our Days. As you're able, let me invite you to stand. Again, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all the generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, and the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set your iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. For they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Verse 12. Teach us then to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. God inspires today through his word. You may be seated. Like sands through the hourglass, so are young woman leaves her apartment, proud of her new career, excited about the new opportunities before her. Indeed, the world is stretched out at her feet. She boards her train moving toward the business district of her city. She gets off, strolling leisurely toward her office building, which rises like a silver spire in the alabaster city where she works. The world is her apple. She takes the elevator up to the 109th floor, sits at her desk, and gazes out across the huge city where she works, and she says to herself, this is the greatest day of my life. And in the next moment, As an airliner crashes into the World Trade Center and it collapses to the ground in ashes and her body is never found. What about our days? What about our days? It's right for us to pause from time to time and get perspective on these things. It's right for us to do it. It's wise for us to do it. And God would have us do it. Not to make us afraid or anxious or fearful, but rather rather to give us the perspective we need and the sense of purpose we need for the days in which we live. 
give you a few thoughts this morning. They're on your outline. Number one, our days are limited in number. You might want to write that down. Not that you need to, but just as a reminder. Our days are limited. Moses said, Psalm 90, verse 10, the length of our days is 70 years or 80, if you have the strength. Yet their span is trouble and sorrow. They quickly pass. We fly away. Regardless of our age, regardless, we're all living on borrowed time. If you're, if you're 16 years old, you're on borrowed time. If you're 80 years old, you're on borrowed time. All of us are. We must know that the number of our days is limited. This must not make us apprehensive, as I mentioned, but rather diligent, purposeful in it. Not to waste our time. One of the great tragedies of this life is to look back and realize that much of our time has been wasted. Now, I know there must be balance and there must be rest and there needs to be recreation. I get that and I understand the importance of that. But the fact is that every minute, every 60 seconds has eternity in it. It's meaningful in this life. All, all the time we have is right now. Think about that. God, God doesn't relate to us in yesterday and none of us are promised tomorrow. So the fact is that all we have is this day, this moment in this day, right now is all we have. This is our reality. And so the stewardship of time is a responsible action in reference to our limited number of days. I only have a certain amount of time. I'm going to make my days count. It's going to matter in some kind of God-honoring way. Think about Jesus. Jesus actually existed before time. He said, when, when asked one day about his existence, he said, look, before Abraham was, I am. He said, look, I, I, was, I, was, I was always here. Before Abraham was, I am. This same Jesus who knew that he would exist after this life, after the cross, after the resurrection, and all eternity, he said these words. He said, I must work while it is still today. That's in John chapter 9, verse 4. Jesus, now think about this. If, if Jesus, who had eternity behind him and had all of eternity in front of him, knew that he had to make rightful stewardship of the days of his life, how much more then do we? And so... We hear Moses and the wisdom of this man say, Lord, teach us to number our days, to get perspective on the limitation of those days, and that we would have a heart of wisdom and purposefully and carefully apply our lives. So our days are limited in number. Number two, our earthly days will give way to eternal days. Our earthly days will give way to eternal days. Now I want to read the Bible some more for you this morning. I'll put it up on the screen. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, Peter says, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our father died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget. It's an interesting turn of phrase. They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So he's suggesting here that the world came into being. Crea creation occurred because of the word of God. God spoke and the, word, the world came into being. And, and was formed out of water by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. He's talking about Noah's flood. The judgment of God on the earth in those days through water. 
By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So in other words, what is being said here is those who deny the coming of God's judgment and wrath also deny the fact that God made the world. So the same people, the same people who scoff at whether or not God's going to come again and judge the world are the same ones who say, we're not even sure God created the world. And that is the world in which we live, isn't it? I mean, even here in Muncie, Indiana, Ball State University has now been declared by the president of Ball State University that there is no reliable science that suggests that there is intelligent design in the universe. Creationism cannot be taught as science. And the world has gone mad. We're living in the days Peter spoke of. In the last days, he said, scoffers will come and they will scoff. And they will say, look, where is this coming? Everything's just the way it's always been. There's nothing to this coming. And by the way, we're not even sure this, this coming of God has any relationship with reality because we don't even believe God exists. He didn't even make the world. And here's the second thing that Peter's teaching, that they also deny that God judged the world once with water and also that what remains will be judged with fire. You know, Hollywood has uh, piled onto the Noah story here in recent times and, you know, all kinds of contention around that, that movie. And, of course, you really can't trust Hollywood uh, to do anything that's going to be necessarily helpful. And so people poo-poo that, you know, and here's Noah. Yeah, the, there's a big flood once, you know, and Noah marched the animals two by two, ha-ha, and a wink and a smile. Mm. And so when a, when a crazy, crazy Bible preacher like me gets up on a Sunday morning and says, you know, the world was destroyed once by water, and the next time it will be destroyed by fire. People laugh. People wink. Let's continue, though, in Second Peter just for the fun of it. Verses 8 to 12, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Some good news there. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Now hear what Peter is saying. The final end of all days, all the days of our lives will come suddenly and without announcement. The Lord will come like a thief. Now what does that mean? The Lord comes back like a thief. It just means without announcement. There, there's no thief in the world that pulls into your driveway and announces his presence. I'm coming in. Might want to call 911. Get ready. He, he doesn't text you the week before and say, look, I'm breaking into your house the next Thursday evening at 1130. If you could arrange to be gone, I'd appreciate it. No thief does that. The last day of the end of our lives will come suddenly, and it will come certainly. Hmm. Now listen, listen, this is extremely important. Again, in this postmodern rationalism in, in which we live, you need to hear this, and I think this is a helpful perspective. And once in a while, the preacher needs to preach a sermon like this. It's helpful for us. 
The day of God's judgment is as certain as any day in history that has already been recorded. It is certain. It is absolutely certain. It is as certain as D-Day. It's as certain as 9-11. It's as certain as the day you were born. Just as certain as we can mark in some historical fashion these milestone events in history, the day of God's judgment on this planet is coming. It's already been fixed in the mind of God. He alone knows when it is. But for us, it will come suddenly, it will come certainly. The day of the coming of God, listen, it's not a Bible story. This isn't, this isn't a metaphor. This isn't an allegory. This isn't mysterious talk. Peter's just straightforward. Look, God judged the earth the first time with water. He's going to judge it the second time with fire. Even the elements, he said, are going to melt like wax. Not just the stuff that we see. But at a molecular level, the world will turn to fire. The day is certain. It's already recorded in the mind of God. It will come suddenly. It will come certainly. It will come finally. Now again, the point of this isn't to make you afraid or, or phobic or anxious in any way, but rather to give us perspective. These are the days of our lives. They are passing quickly. We must, we must learn to number our days so that we would live with wisdom and honor. Revelation 22.11 says it this way, On that day, let him who does no wrong continue to do wrong. And let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who also does right, let him keep doing right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Now, what is John the Revelator communicating to us about this last day of judgment? Let him who does wrong just keep doing wrong. If you're doing good, keep doing good. Just keep being yourself, is what he's saying. In other words, nobody is going to get a special deal that day. No one's going to cop a plea. No agreements are going to be made. Nobody's going to do a deal. There will be no last-minute opportunities for change. On that day, when Jesus Christ returns, and we are glorified with him, and the earth melts like wax behind us, in whatever order it happens, at whatever time it happens, when that day is done... It's done. Suddenly, thoroughly, and finally. Nobody's going to get to change their mind. Nobody's going to get to rearrange things. Whether these things happen in our generation or these things happen a hundred generations from now, it will be sudden, it will be certain, it will be final. Now remember the point. The days of our lives on earth will end. Now whether we are alive to see the things described in 2 Peter or not, our lives will end. I was in the hospital visiting a parishioner many years ago. Before I left the room, the parishioner said to me, my roommate is dying with a brain tumor. He hasn't made his peace with God. Would you please speak with him? Okay. It's a, a bit reluctant, but I, I made the big trip, you know, around the curtain between beds where I found... An older man, an older gentleman lying in the bed, weakened and near death, but lucid. And his little wife there sitting holding vigil. I introduced myself, and of course they had been eavesdropping on the conversation that I had with our parishioner and had heard our words and heard our prayers. 
And once we got past the introductions, got the first names, I turned to this man and I asked him three questions. It was obvious to me that he was dying. I knew his prognosis. He has a brain tumor. He's dying. I looked at him and I said, do you know you're dying? He looked at me and he said, yes, I know. As it turns out, he had three days to, to live. The second question I asked him was this. Have you made your peace with God? He looked at me and he said, no, I have not. And I said, the third question, would you like to receive peace with God through the gift of salvation found in Jesus Christ? And I said, if you'd like to receive that peace, I'm going to put my hand right here next to yours on the bed. And all you have to do is roll your hand into mine. And I'll pray with you. And what that man said next to me, I will never, ever forget. He looked at me and he said, not now. Not now. Not now? Not now? What? What do you mean, not now? I had a professor and mentor at Asbury Seminary named David Siemens. Some of you know David Siemens because of his writings. He uh, wrote some classic books on healing and emotional damage. And one day I remember Dr. Siemens lecturing and he launched into this category, which I'm illustrating right now. He said, I've been in the ministry for 60 years and I've never seen a deathbed conversion. He said, I'm sure they happen. I don't deny that they happen, but I've never seen one. I've presented the gospel to men who were dying in that moment, and they wouldn't say yes to Jesus. And then he said, why do you suppose that is? He said, it's Pavlovian psychology. Now you have to understand Dr. Siemens and his keen, keen uh, analytical skills. He said, for year after year after year, they touch the pedal and the food drops out. This is Pavlov's dog that we all learned about in our psychology class. He hits the pedal, the food drops out. Dog wants to eat, he knows, hit the pedal. He gets food. They sit at home, he said, watching faithful presentations of the gospel on TV or listening to them on the radio. They sit in churches week after week, or they sit in youth meetings, or in small groups week after week, and in some cases, year after year. And he said, they believe this, that the days of my life stretch out on an endless highway of seamless pleasure, saying to God's provision of eternal hope, not today, not today, no, not today. Until the final presentation and invitation is given, and the response is involuntary and psychological. They are in bondage, he said, to a pattern that they have established over many years of resisting. Think about this. Many years of resisting the hope found in Christ so that at age 60 or 70 or 80, they are faced with the final question, and they respond by saying, not now. Not now. Not now. 
And Dr. Siemens went on to elaborate. And he said, you know, he's got nothing left to forsake. You know, he's going to be dead in three days. He's not in an affair with some other woman. He's not in bondage to alcohol. He's not holding out so that he can taste, taste of sin one more time. I mean, that, that's not what's going on here. He's got nothing left to live for. He's just there. He's, he's dead. He's done. He's about to go into eternity. And Dr. Siemens then said this, the only thing he had was the one thing he wouldn't give up, and that is his will. Now hear the wisdom of God. It is never sin that keeps you from coming to God, no, but an unyielded will. And the only time you can surrender your will is right now, is right now, is today. It's right here. It's right now. You can't surrender your will yesterday. You can't do it tomorrow. Only right now is the moment that you can do it. If you've denied God's ownership over your life, now, 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 all the days of your lives, when the final now comes, the involuntary response of not now is almost irrepressible. Let me remind you of my point. Our earthly days will give way to eternal days. So the decisions we make here in our relationship with God are the decisions that we will live with forever. And so if you're a person who has heard the gospel, but you keep it at arm's length, thinking that your life is going to go on and on and on, and that there will always be another opportunity for you to say yes and surrender your will to God, then you are a fool of the highest order. Because the more you say no to God's call on your life, the least, less likely it becomes that you'll ever be able to say yes. I'll just wait. I'll wait till I'm in the bed. I, I, won't, I won't mess up like that guy you just described. I'm sure you will. Dr. David Seaman said in 60 years he'd never seen a deathbed confession. And you won't make one either. But the choices you make here and now are the choices you'll live with forevermore. Smarten up. Mm -hmm. Number three, our days as Christians are lived then with perspective. As a Christian person, we have perspective on the world. The term days used many ways in the scripture. You know, you have a day and a night, that's 24 hours. We find that in the Bible. Uh, we have the day of God, that's the day when he returns, which I've been describing. And the Bible also uses uh, the word day to mean an epic or an era or a season of time. You know, just, just this... Uh, this uh, span of time called the day of God, the day in which we live, the day of postmodernism, the day uh, when, that we mark a certain season of time or epoch of time within our world. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. Put this on the screen so you can see it with me. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation... I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now, I'm suggesting that Christians can live with perspective on the world, and this is my point. This is the day of salvation. This is a season, an epic of opportunity for, for the reception of God's grace. 
It's a, it's a great moment. Philippians 1.6 says it this way, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now this means that the day in which we live is characterized by the day of Christ. This is, this is an important day. This is a season, an epic, a time frame of salvation. This is, a, this is a moment in history, a season in history, when God has been patient toward us and His mercy is extended toward us, toward us and salvation is made available to us. It's, a, it's, a, it's an age of salvation. It's an age of grace. It's the age of Jesus Christ. And this is great news. People say, we're living in tough times. Well, yeah, no, but I say, but wait, it's the day of Christ. You say, but there's famine and genocide and racism and political rancor and violence. Yes, of course, but that is all mitigated by a greater reality. And the greater reality is that this is the day of Jesus. This is the day of the Lord. This is the day of salvation. This is the day of Christ. This is an opportunity to say yes to him and his amazing love for us. Now, I can lose my perspective if I focus on the human condition or if I focus on the environment or the geopolitical or, or, or get my worldview warped by patriotism or some other thing. But, but all the while, my point is simply that there is a greater truth. There is a greater reality at work in this moment, in these days of our lives. And that is, this is the day of Jesus Christ. This is a day of opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. So our days as Christians are lived with this perspective. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. True, nevertheless... There is greater news. There is a greater hope. And that is God is at work in our world. God is moving by His Spirit. Lives are being touched and transformed for eternity because of this wonderful season, this day of God, salvation, that is available to us even now. It's a wonderful day. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful day because of the opportunity we have in Christ. Number four. Our days are lived, therefore, in confident joy. Our days are lived in confident joy. Despite what may come, no one has promised a rose garden of painless bliss without suffering or heartache. Here's an axiom for you. An axiom, the next phone call can change your life. Isn't that true? The next phone call can change your life. For example, this afternoon, if you get a call from a relative and say, I've got bad news, Uncle Jack, living in St. Louis, has died. And so we're, we're sorry, we're sad. You weren't really that close to Uncle Jack, but you, you get the word. And then this, uh, Uncle Jack has left you $40 million. My life has just been changed. My life has changed. Now, if that happens to you today, listen to your pastor now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to help you. What you do is you take the first $20 million that you've inherited and you give it to Union Chapel so that we can expand our mission here and there around the world. God will bless you for it. It'll be wonderful. And you take the other $20 million and you just do whatever you want. Change your life. Change everybody's life. Fantastic. Way to go. One phone call. Or the phone can ring and you pick it up and you say, this is a police officer. There's been an accident. I have, good, I have bad news. One phone call can change your life. So how do we live in this reality? Are we traumatized by the next ring of the phone? Phone rings at 10 p.m. Oh, God. Oh, God. Can't be anything good at 10. We go to the phone, you know, trembling. 
No, no, no. We live in confident joy. Let me remind you what Psalm 118 verse 24 says. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day the Lord has made. Remember, we don't have yesterday. We don't have tomorrow. All we have is today. This is the day the Lord has made. Now, let me ask you something. Are your circumstances today always going to be bright and beautiful and blessed? No. Sometimes they're going to be horribly traumatized with the worst possible scenario and circumstance. Nevertheless, now don't hear me being insensitive to your pain. Don't hear me, don't hear me uh, being sim- simplifying the complexities of life. What I'm saying to you simply is that it's possible, no matter your circumstances, to live with the confident joy that only God can provide for you. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. See, this is the one thing that confuses the world and the flesh and the devil. The devil doesn't get this. This is the one thing that messes up the whole system is when Christian people, in spite of horrible circumstances, have the peace of God that passes understanding and live with a confidence and a hope that only God can provide them. And it's a wonderful thing. When the Apostle Paul was preaching the first messages in Europe, he was, uh, he was going from city to city. Thousands were being converted at the sound of his voice. I mean, think about... Think about the fruitfulness of his life and his ministry. By his word, sometimes he'd just speak a word and demons were coming out of people. He he was touching people and they were being instantly healed. He was speaking the words of God's gospel and people were coming to faith in Jesus by the thousands. It It was an incredible, miraculous move of God. He was being extolled across all of the known world at the time. As, as the great evangelist, you know, the Billy Graham of his day. Incredible, incredible fruitfulness, incredible productivity, incredible blessing, favor, just, just resources and everything was flowing to the apostle. And then we find him with his sidekick Silas and they end up in Caesarea Philippi. And one of the magistrates hear them carrying on and the magistrate orders that they be stripped, naked, beaten, paraded through the streets, and thrown into prison. They weren't charged with anything, hadn't necessarily broken any law, just some guy took some offense and had them mauled and thrown into prison. Now that's a bad day. You think, well, what's going on? Everywhere I've gone so far, people love me. They receive the ministry, they're blessed, everybody's happy, everything's great, and I scoot into Philippi, and they beat me to a pulp. So here's Paul and Silas, and we know what they did in response. This is a great lesson for us. Acts 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. About midnight, can you imagine? They're, they're shackled hand and foot, the, the bottom of some Roman prison in Caesarea Philippi. And here they are at mid, after midnight. What are they doing? Going, God, what happened? Well, we're wrong. Everything was so good. And then it just all imploded. Does this mean our, our ministry's over? You're done with us? Why didn't you protect us? Why? Why did this happen to me? 
That's not what they're doing. They're singing hymns and worshiping God. You can almost see Silas using his chains like a tambourine. Paul's over there singing, I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my sickness. I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. The other prisoners are listening. Who are those guys? What is their deal? They've got something I don't have. What is that about? And their confident joy in the most beaten, demoralized, wounded moment in their lives, they say, listen, I'm not going to wait for another day. I'm not going to wait for a breakthrough. I'm not going to wait till I get out of these circumstances. I'm not going to wait till my body heals all up. I'm not going to wait until people like me again. I'm not going to wait until everything's flowing well and there's wind in our sails and things are easy and blessed. I'm not going to wait for that day because this is the day the Lord has made and I will rejoice and be glad in it. Well, there's a lesson in there. And so the Christian can live with confident joy. Christ in this moment, think about it. Christ in this moment makes it the day of salvation, the day of atonement, the day of the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of confident joy. Because Jesus is in this moment, and Jesus is in this season, and Jesus is in this day, there's hope for us. Listen, here's a fact. If I die at the age of 90 sitting in a nursing home somewhere, or if I die tomorrow in a car crash, Either way, it won't be the number of my days that matter. What will matter is the surrender of my days. How many days have I surrendered my will to God's best plan for me? How useful have I been in His name? How passionate have I been for His cause and for things that really matter? It's not about the... Quantity of life, friends. It never is about that. It's always about the quality of your life based on your surrender, your usefulness, your passion. That's what matters. And so we hear people ranting and raving about choices and about sinful choices and bad behaviors and, and what if and people living in their phobias and their, and their, their wounds and their dysfunctions. But listen... We've missed the point. We've missed the point about sin, for example. The act of sin, doing this or saying that, going here, going there. That, that may be bad, but it's not the point. It's not the point at all. The point is that when you look back on the days of our lives and then only to realize that it was wasted, that's the greatest sin of all. To have lived your life and come to the end of it and look back and think, I wasted my days. That's the great sin. That's the great sin. So Moses helps us, doesn't he? When he says, Lord, teach us to number our days. Days are limited. Quickly going to be any an eternal perspective. Give me the perspective I need, God, in order to live with wisdom and discretion. Teach me to number my days so that I might have a heart of wisdom. Hope that's your prayer today. And I hope you'll live well. Now let's pray for just a moment.
Lord, thank you for reminding us today that our days are limited in number, that they will give way to eternal days, and that the decisions, the decisions that we make right now, today, right here, right now, will count for eternity. And so we can live with perspective. There may be trouble, there may be trial, there may be tragedy, there may be all of these things, but but overwhelming all of those circumstances, Lord, we are reminded this is the day of the Lord. This is the day of salvation. This is the day of hope. This is the day of Jesus. So Lord, help us to live our days in confident joy because this is the day the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Now I pray for you this morning, friend. I told this story about a man dying at Ball Hospital years ago who would not surrender his will and make his peace with God. Let me remind you, today is the only moment you have. Right now is the only moment you have to surrender your will to God. I want to challenge you to do it. Do it right now. Don't put it off another moment, not another day. Don't do it. I'm warning you, don't. Say yes to Jesus right now. Now look, everybody's praying, nobody's looking around. I'm going to ask you to do one thing. I'm not going to embarrass you, I'm not going to point you out, I'm not going to do anything like that. But I want you to do something that indicates your desire to surrender today to Jesus, maybe for the first time. And if you'll do that by simply just putting your hand up in the air, put it up and then bring it right back down. Good. Good. Very good. Wonderful. I'm proud of you. Wow. All over the room. Now everyone pray this prayer out loud after me. Gracious God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. I've missed the mark. I've fallen short. But I believe that Jesus Christ died for me, that his death satisfies my sin. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Come into my life. I surrender my will to you. I want to know you. I want to have your peace. Help me to live for you all the number of my days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now would you stand and sing with us?